0: Hello, I'm Dr. Annaline Weston, Dental Legal Consultant at Dental Protection. Welcome to Risk Bites, a series of podcasts created specifically for dental practitioners in Australia. Risk Bites looks at the key dental legal risks and issues affecting dental practitioners across Australia and provides helpful advice and guidance on how to steer clear of them, leaving you free to provide safe and high-quality dental care for your patients. In this edition, my colleague, Dr. Colm Harney and I are going to have a look at the treatment option of doing nothing and whether doing nothing is actually a valid treatment option at all. Now, on the surface, this might seem like a simple question with a straightforward answer. However, we at Dental Protection see many examples of how this question can arise in different aspects of dental care and subsequent complaints, from some of the easiest matters to the most complex and costly complaints we manage. So how do we start to dig deeper into this notion of doing nothing?
1: Thanks, Annalene. Well, yes, there there is a lot to unpack here. Indeed. When I began to look further into this aspect of care, it became apparent that it crosses over many aspects of dental practice, such as consent, scope of practice, elective versus non-elective treatments, and even our intent. For us at DPL, when there is a dental dilemma, our first point of reference is often the Dental Board of Australia Code of Conduct, the standard by which we are held to account by the regulator.
0: Okay, column. so what does the code have to say on this area?
1: There are a number of aspects of the code that consider patient autonomy and consent. First cab off the rank is 2.1, where it's stated that providing good care includes recognizing and respecting the rights of patients to make their own decisions. In 3.2, which discusses the practitioner-patient partnership, This alludes to respecting the right of the patient to choose whether or not they participate in any treatment or accept advice. In addition, 3.5 covers informed consent and describes it as a patient's voluntary decision made with knowledge and understanding of the benefits and risks involved.
0: So where then does doing nothing fit into our treatment options and what are the benefits and risks involved?
1: Yeah, great question, Annalene, which really gets to the heart of the matter. In my opinion, it really boils down to the fact that Do Nothing is an option that I give in almost all scenarios in my practice of dentistry. In other words, when this option forms a valid part of the decision cascade, I always give it, no matter how ridiculous it sounds at times. The caveat to that is that I explain the benefits and risks of this option just as I would any other option. So the best way to explain this is probably to give an example. For me, a common situation where this arises in the conversation of consent with my patients is for a missing tooth. I'll tell the patient that broadly, there are four options. One, do nothing. Two, a denture, and that might be a acrylic, chrome, whatever that may be. Three, a bridge, and again, varying types of bridges, or four, a dental implant. I'll obviously go into much more detail on each and with respect to the do nothing option, I will explain that it may be more justifiable the further back in the mouth we go. In most cases, we don't suggest replacing a missing upper wisdom tooth in the otherwise intact dentition, but with an upper central incisor, we're usually having a completely different conversation in terms of the emphasis being placed on the do nothing option. However, sometimes even with the missing front tooth scenario, the response can be surprising and for many different reasons, including but not always financial, the patient may well decide that for the time being, doing nothing is the best option for them, despite what we may think or advocate for them.
0: Yes, that's a good example. And it's true that when we give all options to patients, they can certainly surprise us sometimes. Now, you mentioned scope of practice earlier. How does doing nothing relate to this?
1: Yeah, uh, again, and relating this back to the Code of Conduct, uh, as you would know, Annalene, we are expected to work within our scope of practice. 2.1 states that good care includes recognizing the limits to a practitioner's own skills and competence and referring a patient to another practitioner when this is in the best interests of the patients. This is an area of dental practice that we at DPL assess as part of many complaints. Was the practitioner working within their scope? The question that goes hand in glove with this is, if they had any doubts, why didn't they consider the do-nothing option and refer, again, in the best interests of the patient? A common example of this might be starting an upper first molar root canal treatment and not finding or being able to access the MB2 canal. Should you proceed? Knowing that up to 90% of these teeth will have an MB2 canal, and if it's not found or instrumented correctly, this treatment may fail. Sadly, as well, sometimes, as you know, we see less experienced practitioners who've suggested the do nothing option to their patient, but been pressured by a patient to proceed and end up with an adverse outcome and complaint. At the very least, if this conversation of consent, with all the pros and cons of all reasonable options is documented. Then, proceeding, when do-nothing might have been the wiser course in hindsight, may be easier to defend.
0: You also mentioned elective and non-elective treatments. How does this relate to doing nothing, and what difference does it make?
1: Yeah, I I think this is a really important area, and I'd put forward a rule of thumb here. The more elective the treatment the more crucial it is that the do-nothing option is discussed, understood by the patient, and of course, documented, especially when it applies to irreversible treatment, such as electively preparing teeth for veneers or crowns. One example of this is where our colleague, Dr. Mike Rutherford, talked in a previous episode about body dysmorphia in relation to dentistry. Picture the young patient presenting with a photo of an Instagram star and requesting 10 upper veneers so they can look like them. If the patient is unsatisfied with the finished product, or worse, has some form of adverse outcome, it can be very difficult to successfully defend if discussions had not been had and documented about both the benefits of leaving things as they are and the risks of proceeding to carry out elective treatment especially if irreversible. There is that wonderful expression in dentistry that's particularly apt when it comes to elective dentistry. Never want the treatment more than the patient.
0: And what then about the opposite of this? We often see complaints from patients who feel the practitioner didn't act or treat when they were in acute pain, for example.
1: Yes, that's a great point and there can be many reasons for this also. A common refrain from practitioners is that Friday afternoon acute emergency phone call and that example you alluded to that simple time constraints lead to patients being sent away with a course of antibiotics instead of having what could be more gold standard treatment such as a pulpectomy or an extraction for that acutely infected tooth. Relating to what we discussed earlier The best treatment may not be in the practitioner's scope, such as, you know, if that acutely infected tooth is a broken down impacted third molar that requires surgical removal. So doing nothing may be valid for that practitioner, but there would be an expectation that they facilitate care by offering a valid alternative option. I can give an example from my own practice, and I still remember this well a new patient presented with symptoms resembling irreversible pulpitis from 3.6 or 3.7 that had started the evening before. Both teeth had been crowned many years previously overseas, and the patient had no history or knowledge of why, other than knowing that the dentist had said they had cracks in them. Yeah, and Annalene, we all know the situation where sometimes in the early stages of irreversible pulpitis, the pain can be poorly localised. And that was the case here. On exam, the patient couldn't tell which tooth the pain was coming from. Both teeth were TTP. Both were non-responsive to my limited ability to sensitivity test. And when I took a radiograph, unfortunately, neither had any conclusive signs. I really tried to explain to the patient that in this case, I couldn't make a definitive diagnosis. And, to carry out an irreversible procedure like a pulpectomy or an extraction would be akin to a 50-50 guess at that time. I was concerned that I may treat the wrong tooth, while at the same time I was empathizing with the patient who I was potentially going to be sending away without resolving the painful tooth. I gave advice on analgesia protocols and really tried to accommodate the patient by fitting them in at the end of my day, the very next afternoon session. I explained that often as the pulpitis develops, it'll become more apparent which tooth is involved and then I'll be able to treat with more certainty. Well, you probably know how this ended. That was the last I heard from the patient. She canceled her appointment mid afternoon the next day saying that she'd gone and received treatment elsewhere and the dentist had diagnosed the problem straight away. One day later, our practice got a one-star Google review. So in this case, was doing nothing the right thing to do? I still believe that it was, with the information that I had to hand that day. But I also accept that the patient, in acute pain, didn't see it that way.
0: And Colin, we can't finish a discussion about doing nothing without acknowledging an aspect of the dental legal market that really is having an impact overseas and will no doubt arrive here the accusation of supervised neglect.
1: Yes, this is certainly a rising area of concern for indemnity providers overseas and is likely, as you say, going to become a growing concern here in the Australian market. The significant difference between what we talked about earlier and the so called supervised neglect is the intent. To this point, the intent has been that doing nothing has been offered as an option in the patient's best interest as part of valid informed consent. What happens when it becomes apparent that the inaction of the practitioner by doing nothing has been to the detriment of the patient's health? Major area of concern here, as you may guess, is periodontal disease. There is a cohort of practitioners overseeing the slow decline of the patient's periodontal condition without any evidence of having monitored, discussed with the patient, never mind treating appropriately or offering specialist referral. This can be unpacked in five minutes by dentally aware plaintiff lawyers who review records looking for evidence of lack of periodontal screening or charting and seeing the progression of bone loss told like a beautiful visual story by progressive bite wings. And the icing on the cake is, the lack of evidence of any discussion in the record with the patient about prevention or even the presence of this disease, unfortunately, until it's too late. What happens when the regular attender changes dentist or the dentist retires and they are told by the new dentist they have advanced periodontal disease? Can you imagine the shock when they are told they'll lose many of their teeth? Who will foot the bill for remedial treatment? Who will fund replacement of all the teeth to be lost, perhaps by dental implants? Sometimes for us in DPL, most poignant of all is the practitioner who has diagnosed the disease and discussed with the patient, the consequence of inaction or non-compliance with preventive strategies, such as oral hygiene instruction or smoking cessation, only to fail to document it in the record. If it's not written down. When it comes to a lawyer reviewing records five, six, seven, eight years later of a patient with a terminal dentition, sadly, there's nowhere to hide. In the example of periodontal disease, just like pathologic tooth surface loss, it's so important that the patient be made aware of the existence of the problem, options for prevention and management, which may include doing nothing, and should the patient choose to do nothing, then the pros and cons are outlined to the patient and documented carefully in the record. If the patient's a regular attender and the problem is chronic, then ongoing monitoring and discussions are crucial. The patient should be informed and understand their condition. And Elaine, at risk of repeating myself too many times, all of this should be carefully documented in the record.
0: Thanks so much, Colin, for that overview of doing nothing. And it's clear that much of it relates to formally integrating it as part of the conversation of informed consent and careful documentation, which, of course, is a theme we advocate across all aspects of dental practice. And thank you all for listening. We do hope this podcast was helpful to you and we look forward to sharing more guidance with you in the future. If you like Dental Protection Podcasts and you'd like to hear more, please subscribe and leave a review.